episode 146, Medication Adherence, What is Happening Right Now? Today, I speak with Tom Cutler, who is the CEO at HealthPrize. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. It is rare that you meet someone in this business who doesn't realize that adherence is a wildly costly problem. And it's also rare you meet someone who hasn't been involved in some more or less unsuccessful attempt to improve adherence. But now might be the time to transform pessimism into optimism. First, we're starting to understand non-adherence better. And if you understand the problem, it makes it possible to actually solve for it. And secondly, value-based payments make the stakes higher. Today, I speak with Tom Cutler, who is the CEO over at HealthPrize. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Tom. Thanks for having me, Stacey. As a guy that deals with adherence on a daily basis, what does that term mean? So it's an interesting question because part of the problem with uh, talking about it is that so many different words have been used to describe what is basically the same thing. Patients properly taking their medication as prescribed. Yeah, and I'm old enough to remember before the term adherence, you know, when I think it started out as compliance and then that word went went out of style, right? And then then it was like compliance and persistency for a while and then somebody invented the term adherence. And I think the term adherence has more of a, I don't know, patient focus to it to some degree. I think the issue isn't so much about how we talk about it in terms of the words we use, but the basic bottom line is it is a huge problem. Patients not taking their medication properly or not taking their medication at all is the single costliest problem in all of healthcare. Can you elaborate? New England Healthcare Institute, now called NEHI, in a famous paper they published in August of 2009 called Thinking Outside the Pillbox, estimated that Medication non-adherence is responsible for $290 billion a year in the U.S. alone of what they called, quote-unquote, otherwise avoidable medical expenses, making it more expensive than treating diabetes or cancer. It is also the fifth leading cause of death in the United States, responsible for approximately 125,000 deaths, according to the CDC, a year. And it is responsible for a very large number of emergency room visits and admissions into senior care facilities. Sure. And basically, what you're talking about is the cost of the ramification of somebody doesn't take their diabetes medication and winds up with an event. Obviously, these are patients who are prescribed a drug for a reason, and that reason still exists regardless of whether they're taking it or not. Well, that's absolutely right. And Stacey, two fascinating things about it from a perspective of someone thinking deeply about it. That is, there's no demographic for the problem. A middle-aged, white-collar, Caucasian guy living in the suburbs is just as unlikely to take his medication as a 30-year-old African-American day laborer. Race 
ethnicity, socioeconomic status, gender, age to a very large degree, almost none of that actually is a sort of indicator beforehand of patients' likelihood of taking their medication. It's fascinating. There really is no demographic to the problem, which is to say that every demographic has the problem. And the other really, really fascinating thing is non-adherence occurs in places where you would least expect it. Cancer patients don't take their medication. Uh, Transplant patients don't take their medication. In fact, one of the leading causes of transplanted organ rejection is patients who don't take their immunosuppressants. And so it's not just a middle-aged guy like myself who might still think he's invincible <laughs> and might not take his daily statin to lower his cholesterol. You get non-adherence in virtually every indication where the indication could extend your life or save it in the short term. Obviously, if you don't have a defined patient segmentation or whatever you want to call it, it makes it very difficult to target with any effectiveness. But I feel like the the downsides to adherence or non-adherence, we've been talking about them for a really long time. You'd think that we would have been able to overcome, if that was the only issue, we would have figured out how to overcome it by some fancy algorithm by now. What's the problem here? Why are we still talking about this 20 years later or more? Oh, oh no, no, no. We're not talking about this 20 years later. We're talking about this 2,000 years later. Uh, <laughs> I stand corrected. <laughs> Hi- 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 Hippocrates I had some great quotes about non-adherence. And basically, Hippocrates said to other doctors, you know, don't listen to your patients. They'll lie to you about stuff they did that you told them to do that they didn't do. This has been a problem for millennia. And the reason is, for the longest period of time, we viewed the problem as a problem through two uh, overly simplistic lenses. That's the lens of cost and the lens of forgetfulness. Like many other things, we prefer them to be simple. So if they're simple in our little soundbite world, we can talk about them in a soundbite, right? Cost and forgetfulness. You know, it costs too much to buy your meds or IT, these people forgot to take their medication. Except that neither of those things are really the reason patients don't take their medication. Now, yes, there are people for whom affording their medication is difficult. I'm not denying that at all. Even if you reduce the cost to zero, this does increase adherence, but just slightly. There have been a number of clinical trials where this was done, and the average lift in adherence was low single digits. Uh, if you look at the Netherlands, for example, where there are no copays of any kind, if you look across indications, they have virtually the exact same rates of not adherence as we do. Cost is as much an excuse as anything else, as is forgetfulness. Yes, people do forget every once in a while to take their medication. But as I said before, the big problem with non-adherence is staying on therapy over time. Not purchasing your medication over time is a voluntary act. It is not involuntary, gee, I forgot. It's, I'm not going to refill. And that is a voluntary act. And so while we like to give people the kinds of credit that would suggest that they're, had they, you know, if they could, they would do the right thing, the fact of the matter is, is that we don't. And we don't for reasons that have been there all along since Hippocrates, which we're now just starting to understand through the behavioral sciences, which is a whole bunch of human psychology around the behavioral economics 
and the unique uh, sort of aspects of, of medication that are incredibly negative. So I'll give you a quick example of that. We actually did a survey where we asked a thousand people who were on chronic medications and who also filled, uh, purchased at least two supplements every month about their medication taking habits versus their supplements. And many of them actually stayed on supplements for which no doctor told them to take, which the FDA did not approve, in which they took largely because they heard that it was a good thing or a friend told them they should take this vitamin or that vitamin and often paid as much as their copay. But every day took these supplements while in many cases, these same patients went off their medication voluntarily. And what we found is that the reason patients take supplements but not prescribe medications is what makes them feel young and healthy and in control of their own lives. And taking a medication that prescribed reminded them that they were sick, made them think of their own mortality, and made them feel like something other than themselves controlled their life. It's really a problem of human psychology and value perception, which is why we typically have not done a very good job of moving the bar, because we've not looked at it from that perspective. Yeah. And if anyone is interested in hearing more about this, I actually just interviewed recently Dr. Andrea LaFontaine, who's a cognitive scientist, and also Melissa McCool. And both of them talk about exactly like you're saying, Tom. For example, Melissa McCool talked about how the causes of adherence or or non-adherence might be someone just lost their job and is completely stressed out. I mean, that's it. They just don't have time to think about anything else. They just can't deal with it or some other life event or things along the the lines that you just said. It's way too big a problem for a simple answer. But but I think there are some things that we can simply boil it down to in order to achieve really positive results. For example, one of the things that we don't do very well in healthcare is make what we do interesting. Uh, and fun for people, right? And so uh, taking your medication is a really boring and often frightening thing to do. To the extent that we can make it something that people might find actually interesting and they would do for positive psychological reasons, uh, you can get people to engage. We do a lot of that at Health Prize. The, the second thing I'd say is this. There are a variety of different kinds of non-adherence, right? Basically, there, there are three sort of types of non-adherence. And they go along a, a, a temporal spectrum. So first is what's called a primary non-adherence. That is, I go to a doctor, he writes a script for me. Um, I never fill my script. Anywhere from 15 to 35% of patients never fill script. Part of this is out of denial, but part of this is also out because they don't know why. Right? They don't understand how, how, how much it's going to cost me, how often I'm supposed to take this, how long am I supposed to take this, what are the potential side effects. They're in their doctor. They're there for eight minutes. The doctor writes, uh, you know, hey, uh, Stacy, I want you to take XYZ drug. Here's a script. Go fill it. Um, and then off the doctor goes. And before you can even think about the 80,000 questions you might have, you're out the door and the doctor is seen as third patient. It's an educational problem as well. The second kind of non-adherence is called the 90-day cliff. Within the first 90 days of taking a therapy for to treat a chronic condition, anywhere from 25 to 50% of patients who fill, initially fill their script unilaterally go off therapy. So what we have in the United States, at least, where most of this research is done that I'm referring to, is you have somewhere between 50 and 60% of all patients 
who are no longer taking their medication after three months. After that, there's a sort of long tail of people who fall off therapy after 90 days that's called secondary non-adherence. Just to give you some numbers, patients taking insulin new to therapy after six months, only 6% are filling their script on time and only 16% are still adherent to therapy after six months. You started a list. Let us not forget to complete this list. So you said there's a, there's some things that you can do in order to improve oh, adherence. Right. Yeah. So the first thing that you said was make it interesting, gamify. What's number two? Educate people. We believe that the major cause of non-adherence is not a cost problem, but a value problem. Patients don't understand why it's so important to stay on therapy, and they don't make the causal connection between staying on therapy and their own well-being. A, a great example of that are patients on antidepressants. Many patients taking antidepressants uh, stay on them for a long enough period of time to start getting uh, improved outcomes, which is they are less uh, depressed. And a shocking number of those patients fail to make the causal connection between having stayed on therapy you know, long enough to get a better outcome and their own personal well-being. And they'll say, hey, I feel great. I don't need to take my medication anymore. And so a lot of that's about education, right? Stick with the antidepressant example. Most antidepressants typically have a six to eight week latency period. You take the drug, you get no benefit. The drug doesn't take effect in your body for some period of time. Now, if, if a doctor didn't tell you that, you didn't know that, uh, you, many people go off the drug because they're like, hey, I took this thing every day for six, eight weeks and I didn't get a benefit. I'm not taking it anymore. So a lot of it's education. One of the things that we find is that if you can engage people frequently and get them to learn why they should stay on therapy, they will. And you can positively affect their behaviors around their medication uh, by getting them to engage at high levels. Part of the problem in healthcare is people don't want to engage with it, right? It's boring. It bums people out to know that they're sick. And rather than taking this stuff on head on, most people just forget about it. And that's part of what not taking the medication is about right? It's that I can just deny it. If I don't have meds, I must not be sick anymore. So I'm not going to take my medication. And so educating people and engaging them uh, in their own well-being and doing it in a ways that find, they find fun and interesting and that leverage behavioral science can really make a big difference in people's lives. And that's what we do. Is there a number three? I'd say the third thing is being their buddy. Taking medication is a really lonely thing. And it's really strange. We've interviewed thousands of people and one of the things that people always tell us is how alone it makes them feel. Uh, in, in fact, I've got a 21-year-old son who was studying in Spain this spring and lived in a house with 11 other Americans in Seville. And a girl who he lived with visited us this weekend, and she's a type 1 diabetic. We were in the middle of our living room with about 10 other people. And, you know, so she just quietly excused herself. She went to the kitchen, pulled out her auto injector, and gave herself a, a dose of, of insulin. Yeah, I could see on her face how sad she was that she had to sort of separate herself from her friends to do what she knew she had to do. And I was talking to her for a few minutes about it. She just said, yeah, it's, an, it's incredibly isolating, even though I know that my friends know what I'm doing when I walk away and they're very supportive. And so that's just one simple example of, of how it can be a very isolating thing. And so I think the other thing is, is that one of the things that we don't do enough of is support people for taking their medication, right? You'd be shocked at, at how far simple what we call attaboys can go, right? Hey, good job, way to go, that's good work. 
relatively simple support for people who are doing the right thing can drive them to adopt much better habits. So those are the three things that we think really make a big difference, right? One is making it fun and interesting. Two is educating people so that they can increase their value perception from the medication. And the third thing is support. It's funny that you mentioned that third thing because I just this morning actually finished the chapter in the book about changing habits by Charles Duhigg, which is fascinating. But anyway, one of the things that he says is frequently overlooked, teeing it up similarly to how you just did, is community, having community support. And, and people who don't have that community support are the most often to, you know, for example, I'll start drinking again or indulging in some negative habit that they thought they quit. Yeah, that's true. There, there, there's a woman who used to work for Weight Watchers. She, gosh, I, I can't always forget her name. She's a brilliant speaker and just fascinating data. You know, Weight Watchers has been the most, int- most sort of influential and thorough behavior change lab we've ever had. They've published hundreds of peer-reviewed papers. And uh, at the end of this talk, she used to give this great thing. She'd say, okay, Raise your hand if you want me to give you the keys to the castle. I'll tell you everything we've learned at Weight Watchers in 40 years after, you know, 500 peer-reviewed articles. And everyone puts their hand up. She goes, ready? Keep it simple and do it with a buddy. (laughs) I love it. The issue is that's what we've learned, right? Uh, It's taken us 40 years and God knows how many millions of dollars in research to figure out that if you keep things simple and have people do it with a buddy, you have the best chance of success. And I think that's that's part of what we don't do well is understand the psychology of the people we're trying to deal with and provide them with interventions that play to that psychology. This is what is confounding to me. Like, mm-hmm. we can split an atom. So obviously, humans are very crafty. Furthermore, based on the magnificent numbers that you articulated at the top of this conversation, there's a lot of dollars at stake for various stakeholders within the marketplace. Why are we still here? You know, like if we take a look at, you know, obviously pharma companies have a very vested interest in this and they tend to have some budget to put behind it, at least they did in the old days. And we've got payers who also clearly have a very vested interest in negative health outcomes and, you know, providers obviously as well. But maybe we take, you want to take them in order? Like why hasn't pharma done anything with all this? Well, pharma would say that they have. I mean, pharma would say, oh, we, 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 you know, we've tried all kinds of stuff and nothing works. And have they? Uh, uh, you know, kind of. We principally sell our platform to pharma. What's incredible to me is this. We estimated with Capgemini, pharma loses $637 billion a year as a result of non-adherence. No one's ever challenged that number. It may be right. It may be wrong. It is certainly directionally accurate. So that represents what I estimate to be the world's biggest business last mile problem. Name me another industry if they had a two-thirds of a trillion dollar annual last mile problem would not throw everything they had at moving the bar on that problem. So why why haven't they? I I think they haven't for a couple of reasons. I think they haven't because they haven't had to. Pharma, like every other major business, is entrenched. They're an incumbent business. And as a result, they have an entrenched business model. If you think about pharma, there are four ways they can make money. They can bring a new product to market or get a new indication for an existing product. They can get doctors to write more scripts. They can raise their prices 
or they can get patients to take more of their medication. Uh, the first three are their existing business model. They spend billions every year on research to bring new products to market, even though it's getting harder and harder and harder to do. Last year, uh, this year has been a good year for new drug approvals, but last year there were 22 drugs approved, the, the lowest in six years, while at the same time phase three pipelines shrunk faster than any time in the last 10 years. Then the last number I saw was it cost $2.6 billion to bring a drug to market. You know, pharma solved a lot of the easier problems, right? They're bringing drugs to market now to solve really complicated physiological problems, Alzheimer's, cancer, ALS, you know, really difficult problems. And so they're going to be spending more money and more money and more money to bring fewer drugs to market. In terms of getting doctors to write more scripts, that was great in a primary care blockbuster world when doctors could just write and write and write and write when you're talking about patients with diabetes and hypertension and high cholesterol. In a specialty care world, which is where pharma is now making most of its money, doctors can't write more scripts because there aren't more patients to write scripts for. In the same way that you could, uh, I don't want to use the word manufacture, but there were where, where there were lots of lots and lots, millions of patients on that needed to take, for instance, statins. I, I take one. Uh, they're great drugs. There may only be thousands or hundreds of patients now in a specialty care world, and you, you, there just aren't more patients to write drugs for. In terms of you know increasing prices, yes, they keep increasing prices, and uh, which is mind-boggling in the environment that we're in. But they do it. But there's more and more and more pressure on them to not do that any longer. All that leaves left in for them to go after now is the patient. So I think they're going to head in that direction. But like every other business, they're going to go there somewhat kicking and screaming because like every business, they have an existing business model that they've been successful with. And until somebody makes them change, they're not going to. The, the, cust- the patient is the last customer of theirs that they've been comfortable with. And they're still not comfortable with patients. They really don't know how to talk to them. And the regulatory schema they operate under makes it very difficult for them to talk directly to patients. That said, there's a lot more they can do. And I think that they will start to see that this is an earnings per share issue for them. And it's something that the C-suite's going to have to start going after. Now, part of the problem for pharma has typically been that most of the adherence efforts have been made at the brand level. And brands throw you know, small amounts of money at pilot projects and uh, sort of throw spaghetti against the wall kind of thing to see what might stick. But there's never been a pharma company that's had a C-suite focused initiative to spend the proper amount of money on adherence to move the bar. There's no chief adherence officer at any of these companies. They've got a chief executive officer and a chief operating officer, chief financial officer and a head of research and a chief commercial officer and a chief head of HR and a head of this and head of that. There's no company that I know of in pharma that has in the C-suite somebody who is tasked and properly compensated for and given a budget for going after the amounts of the money that they lose from non-adherence. So it's been left to the brands on a sort of brand-by-brand basis. And when you leave stuff to brands on a brand-by-brand basis, you're not going to get big results. So I think there are lots of reasons why pharma hasn't been successful going after this problem in the past. I'm hopeful that they'll do better at it going forward. Yeah, it could be, especially if you leave stuff on a brand by brand basis and they're kind of dabbling that, as you say, they're not getting the results that you might hope for, especially as you compare it, you know, because it's all a zero sum game. You've only got so much money. You got to pick this program or that program. So if the brands aren't really getting that great results and if you're sitting at the C-suite trying to figure out how to allocate the big bucks, 
you might be thinking to yourself, well, I don't want to do that because it hasn't worked in the past. I would rather, I don't know, give bigger discounts to payers, for example, (laughs) as a way to shift share. You know, at the end of the day, what's fascinating is everything is coming around to adherence, right? And so if you start to think about, the, you know, giving rebates, what's happening now is that payers are basically saying to pharma, look, I'm not going to pay you for, for your medication anymore. I'm going to pay you for outcomes. And they're starting to have outcomes-based contracts. Well, how do you get an outcome with a medication? The only way to get a better outcome with a medication is by getting patients to actually take it. And so, as I say, I think there are lots of forces operating on pharma now. They're going to get them to change their business model, not because they're voluntarily going to do it, but because they're going to be forced by the government, by payers, by others to change that model and start to focus on the patient. Pharma is not principally focused on the patient and is not, of all the major constituencies in healthcare, in the best position to do so. But because they are the manufacturers of the product that's going to help get that outcome, and because they have deeper, deeper pockets than most other constituencies in healthcare, they're going to be looked at to take a leading role in this. And I happen to think that pharma companies that step up uh, and put a flag in the ground around adherence will serve themselves really well in the long term in terms of creating shareholder value. Also, I would think a, a primary constituent would be payers. I mean, is this something that, based on your experience, a pharma company would hook up with a a payer to accomplish, or can pharma go it alone? You know, pharma and payers aren't great friends, and uh, I think they're all just trying to figure out how to play nice in the sandbox. Now, payers talk a big game on adherence, but don't really do very much about it, because if you talk to the actuaries that work at health plans, they'll tell you that, you know, they have a 20 or 25% churn on their covered lives every year or two. And so they really care about adherence in patients who might have a short-term cost associated with non-adherence. So they typically care about diabetes, uh, epilepsy, asthma, COPD, congestive heart failure. But there are lots of indications where they don't really care about adherence because the actual increased cost of utilization might actually be more to them than the cost savings. You might get a better patient outcome uh, you might have a better quality of life for the patient, for example, but you, it might cost you more to obtain that quality of life outcome. And therefore, pharma would love it and benefit from it. The patient would love it and benefit from it, but the plan would not only not save money, it could cost them more. And so there are lots of competing financial interests depending on what the dr- indication in the drug is. It gets very complicated when you start talking about payers and adherence. I think, however, when you start to talk about payers and adherence, you can't get away from the fact that they're going to start forcing pharma to play nicer in the sandbox with them around this issue because, as I said before, that's the difference between a good outcome and a bad outcome. Once a drug is approved, the drug is what the drug is. You can't really change it. You can't change it at all, right? What you can change to get a different outcome with a patient is by getting to take it. And that's where the rubber is going to meet the road for everybody going forward is by you know, better patient behavior. And this is not just medication adherence. You know, the vast majority of chronic conditions are caused by bad human behavior, bad eating, not enough exercise. Uh, You know, we're starting to see that I think that people are going to be rewarded for doing the right things for themselves. And, you know, I get, I'm a cyclist and I get emails all the time uh, about lowering my, you know, life insurance for, you know, pennies 
because I ride my bike a lot. It means I'm a healthy person. So I think there's going to be more carrot and less stick on some of this stuff and the healthy will benefit from it. And I think uh, there's going to be a lot of interesting things happening going forward. And medication adherence will be one of those healthy behaviors that will be critical for people's uh, sort of not just their improved outcomes going forward, but for their own pocketbooks. So I think there's a lot of things heading in the direction of rewarding people for adherence. That said, it's still going to take a big push from lots of different constituencies to move the needle on this problem in a significant way. Yeah, it sounds like if, if the first step for pharma goes back to what you said at the top of this conversation, which is value. You know, it's not only the patient who's got to value the product, but also the payer. And if the payer really doesn't, either because the message hasn't been crystallized into their language or for whatever, you know, other perhaps external reason, then you, you, you're not necessarily playing with all your cards. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, can, payers control market access. And if patients can't get access to medication, they aren't going to purchase it or they're not going to take it if they can't get it for a price that works within their budget or if pharma makes it, I mean, if, if plans make it just too hard for them to access the medication, either through step authorizations or prior authorizations or whatever blocks they might put in someone's way. So market access clearly is an important issue. But like I said, I think there are all these constituents that are going to start learning how to play nice in the sandbox together because they have to. Uh, but they never had to in the past, really. I think uh, it'll be a good thing when they figure all figure this out, that we're all in the business of doing the same thing, right, which is getting better patient outcomes. And the more these constituencies can find common financial ground, I think they'll be able to really help patients do that in a, a, a more integrated fashion, which can only be good for patients and for the people who pay for their health care. So, Tom, talk about health prize relative to the list of, of factors that you <laughs> mentioned earlier, making it interesting, educating, and being their buddy. So, we have a software as a service platform that uses web and mobile technologies to engage and motivate patients. We use lots of ideas from gamification, behavioral economics, and proven concepts from consumer marketing like you know, loyalty to get people to engage with our platform. Uh, our average user, we've run, we've run programs in diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, asthma, COPD, HIV AIDS, uh, hemophilia, dry eye, a variety of other conditions. We've run 20-some programs in the past seven years, had hundreds of thousands of patients through our program. On average, our average user logs into our platform almost five times a week spends almost 40 minutes a month on web and mobile with us and is active for almost 11 months. So it gives us a tremendous amount of time to educate people and support them into adopting healthy habits around their medication. As a result, our average lift in adherence above brand baseline for pharmaceutical brands has been 52%. We've had programs as high as 107% lift in adherence. So we have consistently raised people's level of education around their medication, increase their value perception of the value of their medication as a result, gotten them to stay on therapy for significant periods of time beyond baseline. If someone is interested in, in learning more about the service, should they email you or, or what should they do? They can go to the website, www.healthprize.com uh, and uh, learn more. We've got lots of white papers, case studies, information on the business, can request a demo, happy to give people uh, as much detail as they like on what we do and how we do it. Fantastic. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Tom. Thanks so much, Stacey. I really enjoyed it.
Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.